from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Devon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, April 17th. Today, an evolving mandate for the Department of Homeland Security, President Trump's unlikely brain trust, and shrinking national landmarks. The Department of Homeland Security has been in the news a lot lately. The head of that department, as well as a number of other higher-ups in DHS, were recently pushed out. And that's because Trump thought that they weren't tough enough on the border. I share the president's goal of securing the border. CBP is facing an unprecedented humanitarian and border security crisis. Look, I, I think the president is legitimately concerned about the crisis at the border. So I'm Nick Miroff. I cover immigration enforcement and the Department of Homeland Security. Recently, that has meant mostly covering the southern border, because that's the part of DHS that the president has been focused on. But then, in addition to these immigration and border-focused agencies that have consumed the president's attention right now, you've got things like the Secret Service, the Coast Guard, FEMA. Really, it's this kind of sprawling agglomeration of different things that were mashed together in the wake of the September 11th terrorist attacks. One of the lessons learned from what had happened was that there were these federal agencies that weren't necessarily communicating very well. Well, what does that mean? It means that they weren't sharing information, they weren't organized under a single command structure, and they were, in some cases, using different databases. And so the idea was that because you had all of these different agencies not under the same umbrella, that that had allowed September 11th to happen. I don't know if they could draw the line directly from one thing to the other, but it was a broader sense that these things needed to be more centralized and that agencies should be streamlined, the communication should be streamlined, and that in particular, you know, the ability to develop information and databases about the identity of people coming into the country was crucial to protecting against another attack of that kind. Today, we're taking historic action to defend the United States and protect our citizens against the dangers of a new era. With my signature, this act of Congress will create a new Department of Homeland Security, ensuring that our efforts to defend this country are comprehensive and united. And so this idea that the country would be safer if all of these things were centralized in one department, how has that panned out? I mean, if, if the goal was to prevent another 9-11, I think we can say it's been largely successful. Um, the, you know, the United States has developed incredibly sophisticated ways to track people that come into the country, to know their whereabouts. All of those types of things have tightened up considerably. And I think DHS, you know, clearly deserves some credit for that. The question now, I think, going forward is, you know, what is DHS's identity, right? This agency that was founded primarily with a counterterrorism mission is increasingly, at least in the public's eye, becoming kind of an immigration enforcement agency. And, you know, one of the things we've seen with the, the president and his frustration with DHS and his willingness to just kind of clean house across the department is that he's not necessarily very interested 
in some of the other functions that DHS performs. And, you know, White House aides tell us that he really only cares about two things, the border and disaster response. Why is it that President Trump only seems to focus on the immigration part or the emergency response part of DHS and not these other parts that are also really important to keeping the country safe? That's how he thinks of DHS. Secretary Nielsen was brought in largely by John Kelly, the president's former chief of staff, and his first DHS secretary, because she brought experience within DHS, but also this cybersecurity expertise. And that was widely interpreted as this recognition that cybersecurity had become this essential part of the DHS mission. So let me give you the bottom line up front. We are facing an urgent, evolving crisis in cyberspace. Our adversaries' capabilities online are simply outpacing our stovepiped defenses. In fact, I believe that cyber threats collectively now exceed the danger of physical attacks against us. This is a major sea change for my department and for our country's security. Yet, you know, what we saw was the president really wasn't that interested in speaking with her about cybersecurity or hearing about cybersecurity. Some White House aides told us that he would just refer to it as the cyber. And, you know, his passion, so to speak, was the border. And at the same time, he was facing, you know, for at least for for more than a year now, these steady increases at the border and seeing this dynamic snowball in which more and more people were arriving. And he had a DHS secretary who didn't, in his mind, seem to be able to respond with the kind of, quote unquote, tough measures that he wanted. And so finally, things really came to a head late last month when Nielsen flew to Europe to attend the G7 and also to go to a series of counterterrorism and cybersecurity-oriented meetings. And her team had told the White House that she was going to be taking that trip. But when the president found out that his DHS secretary was in Europe in the middle of a border crisis... He grew very upset, and the White House called Nielsen, and she was on the next plane back to Washington. But, you know, she only lasted a few more days. Up into the last uh, duty, Claire is still on top of everything. Uh, I want to welcome everyone uh, and echo what Claire said, welcoming you to the new home here at St. Elizabeth's. This shakeup Uh, at DHS is happening right at the moment that the department has uh, moved into its brand-new headquarters Uh, in southeast Washington. Then Secretary Nielsen cut the ribbon at this new headquarters along with her deputy, Claire Grady, and looking on was uh, Tex Ailes, the the head of the Secret Service. And, you know, a week later, all of them are out. So, you know, even at this moment when the top leaders of DHS are, are moving into this gleaming new headquarters that's been under construction for years, they're in the middle of this massive shakeup. On behalf of the American people, allow me as your secretary one last time to say thank you. And I ask God to bless each of you and your families, to watch over you, and to bless our great nation. Thank you. This is the largest federal construction project in Washington since the Pentagon. And this $5 billion new headquarters was built precisely to try to consolidate all of these agencies leaders in one single place and create a uniform corporate culture. And its position overlooking the city is meant also to symbolize its role as a kind of protector of of the country. 
But it remains to be seen whether, you know, a president who's so fixated on the border and immigration, whether that will have some kind of effect on the, on the corporate culture they're trying to create with his new headquarters. Nick, thank you so much. My pleasure. Nick Miroff covers immigration and the Department of Homeland Security for The Post. Somehow, presidents, you know, for better or for worse, have been drawn to intellectual figures to kind of guide them, give them insight, or even retroactively sort of impose some kind of intellectual coherence on what they've done. For example, President George W. Bush would hold these intellectual salons during the latter part of his presidency. George W. Bush, he relied heavily on you know, meetings with columnists and philosophers and theologians. Philosophers. Uh, philosophers, yeah, during like during the dark days of the war in Iraq. I mean, Bush wasn't big on second thoughts, right? But I think he, you know, he obviously realized things weren't going well. And in kind of a very personal sense, I think it would help him to meet with, with figures like these to, to kind of think through all that. My name is Carlos Lozada. I am the nonfiction book critic for The Washington Post. Carlos has been exploring this idea of presidential brain trusts. And he says that this act of intellectual curiosity from Bush was not unique. Of course, presidents want to seek out expertise from people outside their cabinet. Or at least most presidents would want that. Ronald Reagan, not a big intellectual himself, relied on a lot of the ready-made plans and ideas from the Heritage Foundation. Bill Clinton liked nothing better than to sit around all night talking, you know, policy debates. Obama would, would do the kind of the Bush thing where he would meet with, with columnists and intellectuals and, and historians from, from time to time. Trump is different, right? Trump basically campaigned against established expertise. He doesn't like to read. And yet still there are intellectuals of a sort who decide that they see something there um, that they can build on. So why did you want to write about, quote unquote, Trump intellectuals? For a couple of reasons. I've, I've written recently about the hardcore anti-Trump conservatives, and I've written about the really hardcore sycophantic Trump supporters and their books. And I felt like this was episode three of the trilogy, you know, and and to me, there's there's this really inherent contradiction in what they're trying to do. You know, they they want to attach a sort of intellectual infrastructure around a president who is so proudly anti-intellectual. And the kind of fool's errand aspect of that effort is just really interesting to me. They're, they're these kind of ancillary figures of the Trump era that I didn't want to miss. And they're getting attention. Some of these books sell really well, and some of them are even getting, you know, nominated to the Federal Reserve. So I, I didn't want to miss whatever it is they had to say. 
So can you talk about who some of these people are who are the Trump intellectuals of our Mm -hmm. era? So one, for instance, and one of the ones who became uh, sort of notorious during the 2016 campaign was a guy named Michael Anton, uh, who wrote an essay called The Flight 93 Election, suggesting that voting for Trump was like charging the cockpit on 9-11. It was your only choice. You might die in the process, but if you didn't, death was certain. That's Um, a pretty controversial metaphor. Yes. And he got, got, I think, deservedly a lot of criticism for that imagery. He has come back now with a book called After the Flight 93 Election, um, which is one of the books that I I read, uh, in which he tries to, again, less than making the proactive case for Trump, basically saying, like, you know, look at the left overall. It's this pervasive sickness spreading throughout the West. And, um, you know, Trump is is standing against that. And that's why we have to support him. Another one is Victor Davis Hanson, who's a historian, wrote a book called The Case for Trump. And also, it seems to be more the case against Trump's enemies than it is the case for Donald Trump. But both he and Anton are very animated by immigration as an issue. And so that's a big reason that they they support Trump. And the third book that I looked at um, in this um, in this kind of you know, dive into the the pro-Trump intellectuals is Trumponomics by Stephen Moore and Arthur Laffer, uh, two economic analysts. Um, Arthur Laffer, you know, famously known for um, the notion of the the Laffer curve, which basically means that you know by cutting taxes you will you know increase tax revenues uh, because growth will be so high by the tax cuts that it, it sort of overpowers everything. And Stephen Moore, who has now been nominated by Trump to serve on the Federal Reserve Board, and their book is a a defense of Trump's you know economic worldview, um, but really it's you know the brief for tax cuts, and that's the issue that that drives them to support Donald Trump above anything else. But it seems like there's this fundamental contradiction in all these books is that they're making this argument that there is this, like, intellectual infrastructure behind how the president makes decisions when he is very much, like, a proud anti-intellectual and isn't going to other people for advice and doesn't have this, like, strong cohort of of thinkers that he's going to weigh in on his decisions, that he's a guy who has his instincts and his gut and he goes with that. And it feels like trying to kind of institute some sort of like theme when we know that that's that these books don't reflect how President Trump actually makes decisions. I think that's completely right. And what's interesting, I think, is that you also see that not just on the sort of pro-Trump thinkers, but you see that tendency among writers and intellectuals who also oppose Trump. Like they have their vision of the world, and then they see either Trump potentially fitting into that or Trump countering that. You know, on on the side of Trump's critics, you've seen how, you know, all these writers are saying that the Trump presidency is basically ushering in, you know, the end of the republic. And um, and how that happens depends completely on their particular expertise, right? So the political scientists are saying, you know, it's death of democracy, right? The philosophers worry about the death of truth. You know, the historians, it's the death of leadership. You know, it's they take their particular lens to analyze what the Trump presidency is all about, whether in favor or against. So I think it's a, 
common tendency among writers who are grappling with the Trump presidency. One of the Democratic 2020 contenders said, Trump doesn't really have an ideology, he just has a style, right? And I think that's what a lot of these writers can't really can't really admit to themselves. You know, they they very much want it to be, they want to add an ism to something. In this case, it's to Trump. How do these quote-unquote Trump intellectuals feel about the fact that President Trump not only isn't listening to them, but also isn't listening to his own administration or his own government, right? That he is often ignoring intelligence from the intelligence community. And obviously, this is an issue that is going to come up as we await the release of the Mueller report. So Mm -hmm. what do they have to say about that? I think that they, to the extent that they weigh in on the controversies over Russia and the campaign and all this, it's to sort of delegitimize the the inquiry. They suggest that a lot of this stuff is overblown and exaggerated to the extent that they deal with it at all. You know, it's it's their books, and so they're happy to kind of ignore things that don't necessarily fit into the story they're trying to tell. And I think that they are not terribly troubled by Trump's anti-intellectualism, by Trump's unwillingness to listen to to advice, by Trump's tendency to listen more to, you know, cable news than to his own advisors. They praise his gut. They praise his instincts. They praise his impulses because they suggest that those impulses, you know, reflect kind of a, a popular will more so than than that of, you know, left-wing eggheads. doesn't mean right-wing eggheads are correct either. So you just won the Pulitzer Prize for criticism. And one of the things that was pointed out about the body of work that, that got you that prize was the fact that you have been using nonfiction books as a lens through which to understand a presidency. Why do you think these books and other books are important in understanding who Trump is and how he operates? I think that more important than understanding who Trump is is the attempt to understand how we are reacting and responding to Trump and how a Trump presidency came to be a conceivable thing that happened in this country. And I think that's where reading the books surrounding the Trump presidency can be a a valuable experience. I don't think that they end up giving me enormous insight on Trump that is desperately necessary. To me, it's less about trying to understand him and get into his head. And some books do attempt that. You know, there's books by by psychiatrists who are trying to to examine Trump. But it's far more about trying to understand the country, how it got to that moment, and now how it's trying to deal with with this very unorthodox commander-in-chief. Carlos Lozada is the nonfiction book critic for The Post. And on Monday, he was awarded a Pulitzer Prize for criticism. Pulitzers also went to two other journalists affiliated with The Post, photographer Lorenzo Tunioli and cartoonist Darren Bell. And now, one more thing. 
Bears Ears National Monument. Bears Ears National Monument is named after a pair of buttes that stick up above the landscape and they sort of resemble the ears of a bear. And you can see them from basically anywhere within the region. And they were used as navigational landmarks by people who lived there. And you still can use them that way, which is really cool. I'm Joe Fox, and I'm a graphics reporter. My name is Lauren Tierney, and I'm a graphics reporter and cartographer. Joe and Lauren were part of a team of post-journalists who recently went to Bears Ears National Monument, or to what's left of it. Bears Ears National Monument was established in 2016 by the Obama administration, and the Bears Ears region is located in southeastern Utah, which is near the Four Corners region. If you talk to an archaeologist, they'll tell you that the Four Corners area is one of the best places you can be as an archaeologist in the United States. And the reason for that is partly because of the weather. The dry climate is conducive to the preservation of uh, remains, even if they're in the open. So we spoke with archaeologist Jonathan Till, who's the curator at the Edge of the Cedars State Park Museum in Blanding, Utah. This was a, a real uh, heavily occupied portion of uh, the world for a couple of thousand years, and that included the first farmers. People have been living in the Bears Ears region for over 13,000 years, and it's really incredible just the long history of people in this region. And it's not as densely populated now as it once was in the past, but this area has the rich history of the people that have lived here and all of the tribes that have called this place home. We would call those the, the footprints of our ancestors. We spoke with a Hopi archaeologist, and the Hopi tribe is one of the five tribes that is from this region. And the archaeologist we spoke to, Lyle Blinkwa, was able to give us some insight into the artifacts and how important this region is. That's the physical proof that shows to us and to the rest of the world that our oral histories aren't myths, they're not legends, that there's in fact, validity to them that they did, in fact, happen. And now we're able to go back and utilize, you know, the science of archaeology to help prove, you know, what we've always known. In 2017, President Trump reduced the size of Bears Ears National Monument by 85 percent. This move was really unprecedented because never before in U.S. history had a president reduced the size of a national monument that had been designated through the Antiquities Act. So one thing that it could mean is that all of the thousands of archaeological sites that are within the former boundary won't have the same level of protection. So rather than having federal employees there who can educate visitors on the safe places to go and the sites that can stand having people come by and look at them and walk through them, instead you'll just have people going to what they see on Google Maps or on Instagram or to these places that may not be so resilient to all the foot traffic. It leaves a lot of land open to potential development. Fracking and oil drilling. And there's a lot of culturally and archaeologically important sites in these areas that are left outside of the National Monument now. You can see Joe and Lauren's stunning visual project called What Remains of Bears Ears at postreports.com.
That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Tomorrow will be our 100th episode of Post Reports. And in addition to the news, we're going to have a short origin story about the bell that you hear ringing in the open of each episode. Make sure that you listen, and you can also follow me on Twitter at Martine Powers, where I'll be sharing a sneak peek of that story. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.